0: Good morning. I'm new here. My name is Will. I am the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship at Austin Peay State University. And we've been here about two or three months, and we've felt very welcomed. And it's great to have a church we can come and just be immediately connected, especially during these times, to be connected with and and welcomed by. So thank you very much from the Cody's to y'all. Our text this morning is from John's letter to a new Christian community, it's in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. If you could turn there in your Bibles, it should be on the monitor as well. Let's hear God speak to us this morning. This is God's Word. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would teach us your truth this morning, and that the truth would set us free. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So back when I, I went to UT Knoxville, and after my first year of college, after my freshman year, I was a camp counselor at a, at a camp in Alabama for our boys, and one of the field trips we went on, we went to this cave. So we had a guide that led us into this cave for about an hour or so. It was awesome. I loved it. I thought it was, it was the first time I've ever done anything like this. So I thought it would be fun at the end of the summer after the last day to bring, invite some of my friends to come to this cave, and I would be their guide into this cave, and we'd go farther than we went with the campers. So I led them down the deep tunnels of the cave, past where we'd gone before with the, camp, with the guide and the campers. And we passed this like, oddly shaped rock, and I thought, that's an oddly shaped rock, and kept walking what I thought was straight for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then I had the same thought again. That's an oddly shaped, uh-oh, we just passed the same exact rock after I thought we were going straight. Where are we? We are lost. I don't know where, how to get out. I don't know where we are. And I have led my friends into this situation. It was the most terrifying feeling I'd probably felt in my, in my whole life up to that moment, Um, And then one of the few flashlights we had started to flicker out. And then I remembered and realized, I never even thought about this, we didn't tell anybody where we were going. We didn't tell anybody we were going to this cave. We didn't tell anybody what we were doing. I had led my friends down into deep darkness and there was no chance of rescue and we were possibly going to die. Of course, We ended up getting out. I'm here today before you. We did get out. We just kind of slowly backtracked and found our way out of the cave. But I brought with me out of that cave a new phobia that keeps me up at night still sometimes. Well, the recipients of John's letter are being led into deep darkness as well, but not by some idiot guy named Will Cody, but by false teachers in this church. And this darkness isn't real physical darkness that they're being led into. It's physical darkness that they're being led into. Because as scary as it is to be lost in a cave in deep darkness, how much scarier is it to be lost when it comes to knowing and being known by God? How scary is it when it, when it comes to being lost in regards to eternal life, in regards to not even knowing the basics of what our life is for and what we're doing on this earth? What if you get to the end of your life and you realize that actually this whole time you've been meandering, lost in the darkness, and you have nothing, your life has been completely meaningless and there's nothing but darkness as far as you can see? That would be very scary. How scary would that be? John is writing to a church that is being led by false teachers into deep darkness, farther and farther away from God. And John is shining his light, shining the light of the gospel into this church. These false teachers, among their other deceptions, they were teaching one of the most basic Christian's doctrines was wrong. They were confessing... uh, Sorry, that was my daughter, Louise. I'll talk about her in a second. Um, Among all the other deceptions they might have been teaching there, one of the things that they were teaching was one of the most basic Christian's doctrines was wrong, that we don't have to confess our sins. Maybe they were teaching that you don't have to do this, or they might have even been teaching that we shouldn't be doing this. We should not be confessing... These places where we have sinned against God, where we've gone our own way, where we've not trusted Him, they were saying that this is not important. This church needs to hear the gospel. This letter has been preserved for 2,000 years because this church, all of us, we need to hear this basic message again and again. John's focus here on this text is the refusal to confess sin. Our big idea, however, is that God forgives sinners All their sins. And if we have a God that forgives sinners all their sins, what should be our response? We should confess our sin. And these are our three points. We are in in light of the fact that our God forgives sinners all their sins, we ought to, these are my three points actually, we ought to confess our true walk, we ought to confess our true need and confess our true Savior. We ought to confess our true walk, confess our true need, and confess our our true savior. So our first point is that we are we must confess our true walk. Look with me in verse 5 if you have your Bible. John says, "This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all." John says that he has a message he actually heard. He was the apostle, right? The apostle John. He heard this message from Jesus with his own ears and now he's sharing it with his audience. And that message is this. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, darkness and light are one of John's favorite um, um, symbols that he likes to use. I guess there's also one that Jesus liked to use as well. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about light in a second, but what does John mean when he's talking about darkness, when he uses the symbolism of darkness? Well, there's at least two aspects in mind. First, think about what it's like to be in deep darkness. If you're deep in a cave or late at night with all the lights out, Um, The other night I was holding Louise and she would not go to sleep and it was dark in her room and I felt for this chair. I wanted to sit down and I sat down and I completely, it was the other side, I should have sat on that side. I landed with all my weight and all Louise's weight right on my tailbone. I'm still a little sore today. Why does that happen? Why do we misstep in the dark? Why do we stub our toes, um, hopefully not anything more than that, not falling downstairs or anything? Why does this happen? It's because in the dark we're ignorant. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're going. This is the natural way the world is. It's darkness. It's a dark walk. It's a dark life. It's our life naturally is filled with confusion, uh, pain, futility, and then we die at the end of it. This is what life is naturally like. We're in darkness. But the other aspect of darkness, we could maybe you could feel bad for humanity because of the way that things are, how dark everything is. But the worst part is that we naturally love darkness. We choose darkness. Darkness is where we can hide our evil, it's where we can hide our sins. Darkness is where we can hide our lies and our, weakness, our wickedness. And we don't want the light to expose. We don't want the light to show us what's true. We, don't, we, want the, we want the darkness to keep us away from the truth. And John tells us how to know if we are really connected to God, if we really have fellowship with him, if we're living in the truth, or if we're in darkness. He, says, he goes on, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, John's term here is walking in darkness. That means just living, you know, living your life in darkness, walking in darkness. We, and John includes himself in here, um, along with you and I, if you and I are the Apostle John, claims to have fellowship with God, or claims to even, you know, know the truth or know what's happening, yet lives in darkness, then they're lying to themselves and others. And he goes on in verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light it's a sign that we do have fellowship together with God. That is, if we confess that we have fellowship with him in our lives, in our lives, our lives that walk in the light, that live in the light, then that means that what we say is true. We do have fellowship with God. See, God, John is asking us to confess, which walk is yours? Which life are you living? A life of darkness or life in the light? Has the light found you? and shined on you, into your heart, into your inner being? Has it lit up your life? In 2013, some of you all might have seen this video. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, About 10 miles off the coast of Nigeria, a boat with 12 sailors and a cook named Harrison Okene uh, was hit by a rogue wave, and it quickly sunk into the Atlantic Ocean. All 12 crew members died, but O'Kane was swept by the by the rushing waters into this room that had an air pocket. So for 3 days he was in the blackest darkest pitch black you could possibly imagine. All the lights were out obviously. Scrounging for food, scrounging for some fresh water, listening to shark he said, listening to sharks eat his dead friends. And after about 60 hours of this, a diving crew came and they were expecting they were inspecting the wreck They were salvaging dead bodies, and the last thing that they were expecting was to find anyone alive in this ship at the bottom of the Atlantic. And there's a video of this exact moment, and um, this diver is swimming through. It's all murky and stuff. He's swimming through, and he sees a hand. He thinks it's a dead body. He grabs the hand, and the hand grabs him back. And it's Okane, and he's in this room. And you can see this moment on YouTube. He's been saved, and the light comes up into this room, shining in his face, shining in the room. This guy's saved, and I might have cried watching this video. (laughs) Um, You'll probably cry, too, if you watch it. Um, But this guy's been saved. He's saved out of this darkness, out of this terrible situation that he's found himself in. The question that this text raises is, has this happened to you? Have you been found and saved out of the darkness by the light of the world? Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He's the light shining into darkness. He's the only one that can save us from our ignorance and the wickedness that keeps us in the ignorance. We're trapped. We're hopeless. We're worse off than Okina at the bottom of the Atlantic in an air pocket in a a capsized ship. Walking in the light starts with being found by Jesus. One ancient prophet that we actually read from a moment ago put it this way. He said, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. He's talking about Jesus entering into history 2,000 years ago to be the rescue for intentionally ignorant, stubborn, wicked people like us. Has there been a decisive dawning of this light into your life? Do you follow the light, which is Jesus, and walk in it, or are you still walking in darkness? What is your true walk, John asks us to see as we look at our own lives? John asks us to confess our true walk. And whatever your answer to John's question here, there's good news. Whether you see that you're walking in darkness or you've been found already by the light, our second point is that God forgives sinners. If God forgives sinners all their sins, then we ought to confess our true walk. Our second point is that we ought to confess our true need. Look with me at the end of verse seven. if you have your Bibles? John says, "If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, that is me and God, us and God. and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin." Now when John speaks of being cleansed, he's not obviously literally speaking about cleaning your body. He's talking about it being cleansed of the invisible guilt of the things that you've said and done and thought. Those things being the guilt being washed away. Now when he talks about guilt, remember he's, there's two kinds of guilt in the English language. One of them is guilty feelings. He's not talking about guilty feelings. We, have, we can have guilty feelings for something you've done. You cannot have guilty feelings for something you've done. Or you could have guilty feelings about something you haven't done. He's not talking about guilty feelings. He's talking about objective moral guilt. He's talking about, you know, the reason that people go to prison is because of their guilt. They have a record of the things that they've done. This is the guilt he's talking about. A record, the guilt for what you have done and said and thought. I remember when I was painting houses, when I was back in college, this is another college illustration. Um, I was painting uh, houses in the summer, and I was always very annoyed when we had to use oil-based paint because if you got oil-based paint on your hands, it took take, it take days of scrubbing to get it off. If you got it on your clothes, it was never coming out. These were now my painting clothes, if you got, you got oil-based paint on your clothes. Um, that's not coming out. Now, John here is talking about oil-based guilt that our sins bring to us, oil-based stains that never come off of us. For what we have done, you can wash it as hard as you can. You can do whatever you you can do it. Whatever you try, it's never coming out. That's what John's talking about. I remember having a conversation with a friend years ago, and he um, mentioned that he felt this guilt. He felt this guilt for this thing that he had done in the past. And he didn't tell me exactly what it was. I didn't ask. He was talking about his feelings about this, and as after listening to him for a while, he I think he had come up with this this two-fold scheme to get rid of the objective guilt that he had. First, he was going to put as much time as he could. It was a long time ago. This was like 15 years ago, and it just kept getting longer. So somehow he thought time was going to distance him or expiate, get this, get this guilt off of him. Two, he said that he turned a new leaf. He's a good person now. He's not like he used to be. He's a good person, and he's going to um, atone for it himself by being a good person. Now, I think we can all relate. I think we've all had schemes like this that we've created whenever we've done something wrong to try to make ourselves feel better because we know this objective guilt is there. We think, I'll atone for it somehow to get back with God, Um, to get these feelings to go away and get this stain off of me. But can you imagine a murderer um, going before a judge and being like, hey, listen, I'll I'll be a good person from now on. I promise I'm not going to do it again. Or maybe the judge, in the judge letting him off, or if a judge was like, hey, you just you come up with your own, your own plan to, to make up for this. No, that judge would not, hopefully not last very long. That's, that's called injustice. How much more with God when we appear before him and we, you and I are going to be saddled and burdened with all of our objective guilt from all the things that we've said and thought and done, not only against others, but against him. And ourselves. But thankfully, thanks be to God, that is not in the Bible at all. That is not a biblical. <laughs> God never came up with that plan. That's something we come up with. We come up with things like that. God never says, well, do your best from now on, turn over a new leaf, do something spectacular for me, and I'll make this okay. That's, that would never atone for sin. That would never atone for sin. And God never, that's not his plan. He's never planned it that way. We come up with plans like that. Your true need is much, much deeper, and it's much, much more desperate than that. There's nothing you can do to atone for your sin and your guilt, and God knows this. He knows your true need, and God has made a way for you. He's made a way for us. In fact, God had, before this letter was written, before Jesus came, God for centuries had been demonstrating and illustrating to the nation of Israel what this would look like. He'd been getting them ready for this way that he was going to introduce. Pastor Richard has been um, preaching on the Psalms of Ascent the past few weeks. These are the, the songs that the people of Israel would sing as they came to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice. And for centuries, God wove these sacrifices into the daily lives of the people of Israel. Now, there's different versions of how these sacrifices work, but the main idea and the main structure looked like this. Um, If you were an Israelite and you realized that you had sinned, if you realized that you were guilty, you wouldn't wouldn't try to do better. That's that's not in the Bible again. You would take an animal, you would take a goat, or you would take a lamb to the place where God dwelled. And you would lay your hand on the head of the lamb or the sheep. And then next, a priest would come up to the sheep and the priest would take a knife and cut the sheep's throat. And the blood would pour out of the sheep as it bleated and died there. And you would know, after this happened, what you would be left with is that that should be me. That dead sheep on the ground there should have been me. Because when you laid your hand on the head of that animal, what it symbolized... What you were learning was that there was no way for you to get rid of the stain from what you have done. But God had made a way through this sacrifice. And when you put your head on the lamb's head, it symbolized that your sin, your guilt, your record, the, the result of what you had done, the punishment for what you have done, has now been transferred to this lamb, and that now I'm clean. My record has gone on to that lamb And there stood what was a moment ago an innocent lamb, but now it's guilty with my guilt. It had my guilt in it, and the punishment that was due to me for my sin was meted out to this lamb. It's my substitute now. It's in my place. It took the. It's crazy as the system sounds. It took the punishment for my sin and my guilt for my sin was gone forever. My, because it got punished in the lamb, and it's gone. It's finished. It's finished. My guilt, the punishment for my guilt, is finished. This is your true need. Do you remember when Jesus was walking around um, several centuries as, after God started this? And John the Baptist saw Jesus afar from afar with a crowd. And what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John says, here in our, in our text, when John says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin, from all sin, he says all sin, just to make that clear, like John the Baptist, he's saying that when Jesus died, he was like a lamb. Jesus was like a lamb being sacrificed. And it's not for Israelites alone. It's for anyone in the whole world, from any time, from any nation. From, he takes away the sin of the world, not just Israelites that come to the sacrifice, anyone who trusts in him. And that blood is like is a symbol for his death. The blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is the death that takes away your sin. If you trust in Jesus, if you give up, actually you actually have to give up trying to clean yourself. You have to give up all these self schemes you have to make yourself right with God. If you stop, give up and just trust Jesus that he has taken care of your punishment. He's taking care of your guilt by taking it for you and dying. He's taken the punishment. Your guilt is gone forever. It's finished. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Your true need is something that you may have never even considered before or ever entered your mind. It would have never entered my mind unless I heard it from God's word. Your true need is that someone would look on you in the darkness, and you're loving the darkness, because you can do all the wicked stuff you want in there. Someone to look on you in the darkness love you while you're evil, before you ever turn unto to him, love you while you're evil, and then take the punishment that you deserve. This is your true need. And there's never been anyone in history that would ever do this for you or could ever do this to you until Jesus came 2,000 years ago. This is the whole reason that he came, to save people, wicked people from their sins. Now, if what John is claiming to be true is true, that God would send his son to die for wicked people, that's good news. If it's true, though, that our need is so desperate that God's son needed to die for you and me to take the punishment for your guilt, John leaves us with this last very short point. We must confess our true Savior. Look with me in verse 8. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sins and all unrighteousness. John puts out, John kind of leaves it with this text that we just read. John's leaving his listeners kind of with, there's two paths in front of them. We can confess that we have no sin that needs a savior, or that we can save ourselves, or that we can take we can take care of our own guilt all by myself. Thank you. Basically, we're confessing that we can be our own savior, or we can give up trying to make ourselves clean and confess our sins. When we confess our sins, we're confessing that I trust Jesus. The only person that would ever confess their sins to God is someone who trusts that God's going to take care of them in Jesus. And that is what Jesus is wanting from you on the cross. Jesus doesn't want your good works. Jesus doesn't want your promises. He doesn't want your resolutions. He doesn't want even your repentance. Jesus' last words on the cross were not, you can do it. Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. I've taken the punishment that you deserved. And it's done. It's finished. All your sins, all your unrighteousness. Jesus wants your sins, Jesus wants your guilt. Jesus wants your terrible record of the worst thing you can think of right now that you've done. Jesus wants the punishment for that. It's crazy. He came to earth to go up on that cross and take the punishment that you deserve and finish it. Do you trust him? Can you confess him, your true savior? Can you confess your sins to him? That's what he wants. Let's be sent out this morning by these words of Jesus, these words for the week. I guess, W-E-E-K and W-E-A-K. These are words for a week from Jesus. He didn't come for good people. He didn't come for people that are able and willing. He came for people, sick people in darkness. Sin-sick people in darkness. Here, listen to what Jesus says here. And then we'll pray. This is from Mark chapter 2. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were in darkness, you sent your Son. Does it make any sense? This is why it's good news? <laughs> this is crazy. Father, we thank you, and we pray that this week you would um, show us the places where we are trusting in ourselves and not wanting to confess our sins. And if there's anyone here who is hearing this good news for the first time, we pray your Spirit would um, enable them to trust Jesus. He is a good, good Savior and Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.